One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I've got an old friend of mine, David Wells with me. David, how are you today? Doing well, Brian. Doing well. Thanks for joining us. So David and I have known each other for, gosh, longer than I probably cared to admit, but he has always been exceedingly thoughtful, smart, hardworking, and I am so happy for him that he is doing well with this consulting business and he has put together this book, which I think is really needed right now. So before we get into the conversation, I'm going to do a little bit of background. David is the founder and CEO of Family Capital Strategy, which is a boutique consultancy that provides strategic insight, investment governance development, and family office design for families facing liquidity events, generational transitions, and other significant changes. Prior to founding the firm, David has an extensive background conducting strategic and investment analysis, and he served as a partner and portfolio manager at a 20-year-old asset management firm, co-founded a long-short hedge fund, and was also a senior equity analyst working with large hedge fund and private equity clients. So a very diverse background. And I think given all of that, this will be a very compelling conversation. So before we get into it, the biggest takeaway I had from reading your book, which is called When Anything is Possible, and I encourage anybody listening to go check it out. And I'm sure we'll, at the end of this, provide you some opportunities to connect with David and also access the book. But this is a leitmotif throughout your book, which is it's all about the why. So maybe before we get into to the guts of the book itself, why did you sit down and write this thing? Yeah, great question. I think it comes down to a, a couple of things. I appreciate the, uh, the bit of bio on my end. And uh, I've been very fortunate over the course of my career to work with a lot of different types of investors, a lot of different types of families. And 
I think what I was struck with was we would have conversations and even you know when I was uh, was a portfolio manager managing portfolios for clients you would sit down and have a conversation with someone and you know as a portfolio manager you know you're kind of the you're kind of like a chef where you've got a bunch of different ingredients that you can put together to build the portfolio but until you know whether the client wants chinese food italian or a hamburger it's really tough to put something out there that's going to be aligned and what i found was you would get into a conversation with a client, begin to start walking down this path of like, well, what are you trying to accomplish with your wealth? What's really the priority set? It's a really squishy, nebulous, kind of ephemeral concept. And the challenge was that almost to a T, the conversation would be something that families would say, you know, I want to make sure that I can travel, in which pre-COVID, like such an important part of modern life is, it's so easy to get around the world. They want to see their grandkids and they may have a few philanthropic causes that they care about, but that was it. That was kind of this, the full total of the conversation. And really, whatever level of net worth you are, I think you've got a lot, you've got a pretty broad range of choices, especially once you start getting into what's called kind of the ultra high net worth category, which is typically kind of around the $25 million mark. Especially as you go from there on up into the multi-hundred millions, the question then is not, okay, well, can I travel to the level of which I'm accustomed? Well, yes, you, you could do that. You could live abroad. I mean, you can, the answer is yes. Or can I see my grandkids and be involved in their lives? It's, absolutely. And so, you know, you, you lay out those funding priorities and then there's still a there's still this massive amount of wealth that's left over and nobody really knows what to do with it. Maybe it's held for you know longer term estate planning maybe it's held for some philanthropic priorities but for the most part i think what happens is as people end up with portfolios or just an overall view of their wealth that's not as strategically aligned with what's most important because it's really hard to surface those kind of core level priorities that are there because it it's a little bit of art and well maybe it's a little bit of science and a lot of art to help people think through those things and i think in general the financial community some folks are more willing to have that those conversations. Some are not. And in the reality is what I found working with families in my, my current business, you know, having a series of these dialogues, you know, it may take 15 to 20 hours with a client to really walk through things, to lay out priorities. And that's before you even tr- start saying like, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of stocks and bonds? It's just kind of getting everything to the table for the first time. And so that was really the genesis of the book was, okay, it seems like people need some sort of a framework of how to have these conversations. My poor wife, I try out all of my ideas on her. And, and, and we've had a lot of these conversations just you know, in our household. What are we trying to do with our kids? We can do these things from a, a travel perspective. We can do these things from a house perspective. How do we surface our values as we make decisions? And, and it's nebulous because I think there's great financial advice for folks who have a spending problem. Dave Ramsey right here in Nashville has done so much for helping getting folks out of debt. It's harder to find folks that can offer a really thoughtful, well, what do I, what do, I do after that? As you end up in places where you've, where you've got more than you need, quote unquote, then you're making decisions based off of some other metric. And I just personally found it hard to find something that was a tool that I could use either you know, at home with conversations with friends or with clients. And so it seemed like a book that needed to be written. Yeah. And I would agree as context, my, my wife's family has a single family office here in Nashville. And I remember talking to my father-in-law when I first joined the family and learned about the partnership, he said when he founded it in, I guess, formerly probably like the late nineties, 
the term family office didn't even exist. It just was a limited partnership based in Tennessee for the benefit of his lineal descendants. So as this concept has really become de rigueur in the financial industry and everyone seemingly is talking about family offices, et cetera, could you give us a definition of, in your mind, what qualifies as a family office? Sure. I view a family office The most common saying in family office world is if you've seen a family office, you've seen one family office or or something around that. And while that may be true, I actually find it to be an almost an unhelpful kind of sentiment because it makes it sound like there's nothing common across family offices at all, that they're so unique and individualized to the family that you can't say anything holistically about them. So I actually don't think that's the case. I think there's a lot of commonalities around them. And in general, what I view is the simplest way that I think to explain a family office is, is a family office is a tool that the family uses to manage its complexity. And that's kind of full stop. Now, what forms and what shape that complexity is really depends on the family. I typically see it fall into three buckets. One is is like this bucket of planning. It's all of the moving pieces across all of the various entities that exist within that. And so it's making sure all the ducks are in in a row, the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. So you've got that vertical. There's the investment piece. It's the when the family decides to make the business of managing its wealth a second business, the natural home of that is is in the family office. And then the third piece is all of this kind of middle stuff, which I kind of call family support, which oftentimes people hear that and they say, okay, like, oh, that's where like the family office pays your bills or walks your dog or books your travel. And for some offices, that's true. But I think for a lot of families, it's becomes this, okay, if the family has broader goals as a family that aren't necessarily tied to the business, who does that work? You know, if the family wants to schedule time in the summer to get together and host meetings, like, Who's going to coordinate that lift? If the family wants to make sure the next generation is having some sort of financial education or history and story of the family work that's done, you know, it's really going to be the family office that's the arms and legs of making sure that work gets done. Because I mean, I think you, I mean, I know you and I both are super involved with nonprofits in, in Nashville. When you've got volunteers in leadership on boards, there's just a finite amount of ask that you can make from people and especially with larger families of wealth, there's just so many moving pieces that you've got to, that work has to land somewhere. Now, granted, it's got to have good oversight and involvement of the family to make sure that they're moving in lockstep, but it's really the family office that becomes the front line for making sure that all of the other priorities of the family are brought to bear. Yeah, it, it's a, I like your term nebulous. <laughs> People ask me my definition and I kind of think of it as some form of small business corpus that is meant to maintain a certain quality of life along a multi-generational time horizon and avoid taxes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot more to it, obviously. And I really want to get into the why that you wrote the book. But when you start, it's the motivation behind why we want the things that we want in life and associating some kind of purpose with that. Could you kind of unpack that concept a little bit? Because I think it drives the narrative of the entire book. Yeah, I think if you think about family offices or, you know, really, and, and, and certainly you've got that on the largest, most complex end, I think any family that has means of some sort is wrestling with these kind of three, there's three tensions that they're trying to keep in balance at the same time. The first is, is, is what is the individual's priority set that they want their wealth to accomplish in their life? 
The second is, is what is the family aligned on as its direction of where it's going as a group of people, you know, through time and space. And then the third piece is, is then, okay, how do we achieve that from a business perspective? And so in a family system, you're constantly trying to manage those two dynamics. What happens is, is that most of the time, the business of the wealth, whether it's an actual business that's still operating or it's, you know, a robust investment entity, there's always something to do there. There's always an interesting deal to look at. There's a fire to fight. And so that dominates, you know, that's 80% of the conversation in a family. Family gets together for lunch, dinner, goes on vacation. We're going to talk about that kind of stuff. Probably the next piece down is, is the family. Like, okay, let's get all the siblings around the table. Let's get a bunch of the cousins together. You guys figure out what's important to you and we'll make it happen. And so you may see a bit of that, but maybe that's the 20% that doesn't get covered with that. And a lot of times what happens is the individual is really left out of that. And the concern is, is that while families can function as a whole unit, if you disregard what's happening on the individual level, if those get too far out of whack, like that is a natural breeding ground for either disunity in its lightest form or like the big food fights and blowups that you see in, in the paper. Or if you're a succession fan, like on HBO, like you see the, the story of that family, like you've got individual dynamics that have dramatic impacts on the family itself. So in my mind, that's why with this book, it was like, all right, let's start with the individual and give them the set of tools so that when they, when they are a member of the family, they don't lose their identity. They, bring their, they can bring their, all of the various pieces and priorities to that. And then they can make a, hopefully a more eyes wide open decision about where they want to go as a group. So that's the kind of broader context, I think, under, under which I was trying to, to write. But I think to your, to your original question, it does get back to like what Simon Sinek said. You know, it's this idea of like starting with why. What, what's your priority set? What are the various pieces of life that have to be brought into alignment? And I think within that kind of, that in itself is a, is a really large question. I mean, and that's the work of a lifetime is to, to answer that. What I was then trying to do was, okay, let's break that into a couple of different buckets. Let's think about what I call kind of a wealth structure, which is the, this is all of the stuff that's going to, it's kind of like the lines on a soccer field. They define where the game is going to happen. These are the things that are kind of fencing you in a little bit. Let's then talk about this concept of wealth identity what's really important to you, what's your core values look like. And then take that to this next level of saying like, if I'm living out what's most important to me and in line with my values, what does that look like in the big areas of life? And there's really only a handful. I mean, it's, it's on a personal level, it's your family, it's the work that you do, and it's the communities that you're a part of. If you're living authentically, if at the risk of using a, a kind of a buzzword, you, know, you would see some congruence between what's most important to you and then how you are present in each of those spaces. Once you've kind of got that laid out, then you can then shift to the, to the actual wealth question, begin to lay out strategy around consumption, investment, what you give to future generations, what you give to philanthropy. But if you get that order out of whack, you end up sub-optimizing, frankly. You, know, you may either spend too much, your consumption may uh, overspend what's actually important to you, or you may end up, I, I, we saw this a lot in, in the investment world, is you may end up with a portfolio that's too conservative. Countless stories of you know folks who make more money than they ever thought they would make. They end up in these investment allocations, which are designed for you know belt suspenders, a bunker. I mean, it's it's come hell or high water. Nothing can happen to the portfolio. Which I'm not saying that a degree of risk management isn't important, but there's there is a difference between under investing a pool of assets and over indexing on risk. 
And I think a lot, in many cases, I think because individuals haven't articulated, here's what we're trying to do longer term with our family. Here's what we're trying to do philanthropically in a meaningful way. If they can make peace with that and, and frankly still feel that their uh, the investment portfolio can support their spending, suddenly you actually have a lot more flexibility with that portfolio to do some interesting things other than just own a lot of municipal bonds that pay you essentially nothing. You got to have some of that to make sure that you're, you are risk managed. So I think it's a tra- it's kind of an unspoken tragedy to see a pool of assets that is limited on its ability to growth and therefore limited on its ability to make an impact elsewhere because you don't really know, is this aligned with what, what's most important to me or not? So that's really the kind of the heart of the why question is, okay, yes, like that's super important, but what does it look like to then try and answer that question in a way that certainly is in, informed by all of the you know, softer parts of life. If you're, you are a person of faith, your faith practice, your philosophical views on the world, that's all there, but it's then, okay, well, in light of that, like, what does that mean, you know, on a Monday morning? Like, how do I make decisions based off of this? Right. And, and that lends itself and segues to this concept of having a strategic plan. And so can you tell us how you define strategy and how you implement a, a strategic plan if you are a family of means? Yeah, Absolutely. I actually was asked to lead a session on strategic planning for families by YPO's Global Family Business Group. And what I was trying to lay out with that group, and I think it's relevant here, is, is that strategy at the end of the day is about making choices. And a lot of times we have lost because of, there's a lot of great books out there, Good to Great, Built to Last. There are a lot of great books that are out there like that, that talk a lot about corporate identity. They don't necessarily talk about strategy. While I love Good to Great, great, a fantastic book, wonderful for thinking about the culture of the organization and how it's run. There's a lot of businesses that have said, okay, if I've done that work, then I've got a good strategy. And there are plenty of examples. And actually, one of the most common knocks on on those books is, is that the great companies that get profiled, you play forward 10 or 15 years and they're not great anymore. So what happened? Was it the culture that failed or was it a strategy that's failed? And I think if you look at the business world, you've got a lot of businesses that don't adapt and they don't move forward. And so strategy then ultimately is about making a very conscious set of choices around the things that we will do. And most importantly, the things that we will not do in pursuit of what success looks like for us. And this is where it gets a little bit squishier. And I spent, when I was writing the book, spent a lot of time trying to think through how do you define success? You know, with a business, it's pretty easy to say like growth and profits return on invested capital, like there's a metric you can point to and say like, okay, this is going to be our line that we're going to measure things against. In life, it's not that easy. It's, you know, there's not necessarily a single bottom line that you can point to. It probably is multiple bottom lines. If you over-index on work and blow up your family, when the accounting is all said and done, you actually may say that you weren't successful. Or I do think it's actually possible to over-index on family and under-index on work. And then there's consequences for that. It's really... How, as an individual, do you, A, articulate what the finish line is, or what is that that bottom line that you're going to measure things against? And then what are the choices that you're going to thoughtfully make to then limit your options to say that, okay, in pursuit of having a family that looks a certain way, you know, I'm not like, like, for example, like my father is a physician, heart surgeon by training did his residency at the Mayo Clinic, incredibly credentialed guy. But while he was in private practice, you know, he consciously made the choice where, it's, where he said, you know what, I'm not going to have a lot of hobbies outside of, of my family because 
you know, as he looked across the course of his life, things that would be personally interesting to him, he said, you know what, there's not enough hours in the day and, and my family is a priority. So I'm going to kind of consciously under index on things that would take me away from that. So values, it's a values choice that they made. And then, you know, what's interesting now is, is that like, he's not operating anymore. His life balances back out. The guy's on the golf course two or three days a week, which is fantastic because it, you know, he's, he's consciously making those adjustments. I think that's as parents, as individuals, it's how do we make those choices explicit as opposed to implicit, which I think because of the busyness of life, we end up defaulting into behaviors. Oftentimes without a whole lot of conscious thought, it's just suddenly time goes by and you look up and it's like, oh, wow, like we're, we're so far down the road on this. It's really hard now to back out of, of commitments. And that can be true, you know, whether that's nonprofit involvement, you know, the way that your, you know, your business is structured and the number of decisions that rise to your plate if you're the executive or what you do with your marriage, your family, your kids, the things that are personally important to you, all of those have trade-offs that play against each other. Right. If you, if you want to see an organization's value system, look at its budget. And that, exactly right. and that budget could be how they spend their, their money and also how you spend your time, because that's a direct reflection of the emphasis you're putting on different parts of your life, right? So that's kind of when I was reading through this strategic plan and the wealth identity section, which I want to get into next, that's how I internalized it was, okay, well, I'm going to put certain assets to work in these certain areas because they are a reflection of my value system. Absolutely. And this is, you know, maybe it's an opportunity for like a financial technology company to step up. You know, this week, like Spotify came out with your, you know, your year in review, right? So it's like, so where's your year in review for where you spent your money last year? And if you were to, if you were to take the largest transactions that you've made and be able to look at them on like a top 10 and then overlay your core values and say, okay, granted, like some of those are going to be like the HVAC on the house went out and there was a big, you know, but if you look at the conscious choices that you've made, are those in alignment or not? And exactly to your point, I actually think that the hidden transaction that that's really tough to account for is time. And I think especially as successful business executives, folks who have a lot of competing demands, I think we do tend to undervalue our time. If we look at things and say like, oh, I would never pay someone to do X for me. But, uh, but it's because we don't actually know what is the value, the implied value of an hour of your time. And if you take a step back and say, well, I could do this or I could pay someone to do it for me, things that feel like luxuries because we, you know, we, we outsource them actually are, it's frankly, it's just another way of investing in those other forms of capital. That's the CapEx that funds you know, the family piece of, of your priority set or, or the like. We end up funding a lot of that out of time, but we just don't have a good way of accounting for it. Because with no offense to your prior profession, like we're not all lawyers, like we're not going to keep track of our lives in eight minute buckets. Like it's tedious to do so, but there's, we are making a lot of investment in a lot of places, but we're just not, we just don't have the way to get the P and L for what's happened. Yeah. I would say a profession where the value creation is tied not to how you impact the bottom line, but just how much time and effort you spend on something is a bad business <laughs> in my yeah. experience, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about, so we've got the strategic plan and then it seems like the next step is understanding the wealth identity before you can get into actually implementing the strategy. So could we talk a little bit more about kind of 
how you form a purpose statement, mission statement, vision statement. You kind of have all these terms out there. Yeah. And I think that's, those are, can be challenging because I think they are, it's kind of one of those things that's like, you know, it's important, but how do you actually go about doing it? I've tried to in the book and I don't profess to have like the one methodology that's best for doing it. I tried to amalgamate a handful of tools. And so actually there's a, a separate worksheet that goes with the book that'll be posted online when the book comes out that, that walks through. I, and I kind of view it almost the same way that, you know, you go to the doctor and they do diagnostic work before they tell you what to do next is, okay, let's go through a series of diagnostics to surface that. So there's a handful of questions that I think are healthy, helpful as you begin to circle around that kind of core why question, really designed, you know, in some ways to kind of play, it's almost to kind of start with the end in mind, which is the, you know, the first question is, is, you know, if you woke up with enough money, sorry, if you woke up with enough money that it was, it wasn't a concern, but you had less than 10 years to live, what would you start and stop doing in your life? That is not necessarily entirely my question. It's an amalgamation of a couple of different people's questions. But it's this idea that like, I think a lot of times we make choices because we say, oh, I, I, I don't have the resources to do that. Or it's the like, I'll do it when I'm 65. And so the point is, is like, okay, let's take away the money constraint. Let's bind your timetable. Like let's, let's shorten that time horizon. There's actually a pretty interesting study that shows that when, when we are faced with our mortality, it changes our behavior. But the longer that we view our mortality as being, that actually changes our behavior back. And so like folks who have near-death experiences or cancer diagnoses uh, behave in a certain way for a window of time after that, assuming that they were able to get back to help. But then once they suddenly realize it's like, oh, my, my life expectancy is now back at 20, 30, 40 years or longer down the road, then they go back to, to behaving uh, kind of how they were pre-diagnosis. So the idea is let's try and like as a thought experiment, simulate that. I think the other piece, and I think David Brooks is really spot on with this, with this idea of like this concept of eulogy virtues. What is it that when it's all said and done, the reality is, is that how people are going to remember you may come down to like 20 or 30 minutes that's given at a funeral someday. And I, I'll never forget even just watching, like I had a, a grandparent who, who passed away a number of years ago. And by the time they had gone through the health system from they had a house, then they were in independent living, then they were in assisted living, and they were in nursing living. And at every step of that, there's this downsizing that goes. By the time my grandmother was in nursing, that she had basically, there was the, the room had basically, there was like a, a single glass cabinet where her personal possessions could go. And it was glass so you could see it. But you know, this is a woman who loved beautiful things, loved fashion, always had a gorgeous home. But by the time she was 86, 87, like it was down to a glass box. And so the point being that like even physical possessions like are very much bounded by stage of life and where you're at. It's really that, you know, the, those kind of core character traits that are ultimately going to be what people remember you by. And I don't think we, I know I'm guilty of this. We, I don't think we give them a lot of thought. And so this idea of like, okay, what are not the resume, resume virtues, but what are the eulogy virtues? What is it that you would want people to say about you? And then beginning to kind of grade yourself and saying like, okay, if I want to be known as somebody who's kind, how am I seeing that behavior lived out? I know for me, like I come from a long line of, of folks who have taught in some capacity, a great grandfather who was a professor at Samford and like my grandfather taught a Bible study at, uh, at his church for 50 plus years. Like I've always had, I, I like the chance to teach others about things. That's something that's on my list. If I'm not actively kind of tracking that year in and year out, like 
when opportunities present themselves where I can share share what I've learned and hopefully learn from others, like maybe I'm going to be quicker to say yes or no to things because I, it's not articulated. And then I think as well, the kind of final question in this diagnosis piece is like, what are the things that you consistently find are kind of robbing you of joy in the present moment? Like whether it's worry, whether it's fear. And I think in a lot of cases for some of those things, like they are existential. It's, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just part of the human condition. I think for a lot of times, you know, it's Tim Ferriss, I think asked this question on his podcast, which is the like, what hundred dollar purchase have you made that has dramatically improved your life? I actually think for, for a lot of things, there are pretty low cost you know, and maybe it's not a hundred, maybe it's a thousand, maybe it's 10,000. I don't think the dollar amount's important, but there are ways to, to address things that are actively detracting from your ability to be present in your life. It's just like, you've never surfaced it and said like, Hey, this is an actual, uh, this is actually being a negative influence. Let's figure out it. Is there like a pretty simple solution here? And it is probably 80, 80, 20, like for 80% of the problems, a very minor uh, investment will, will solve them. 20% are the very big things. So I think that's kind of like a helpful starting place for wealth identity. There's an organization called 2164 that's based in New York, really thoughtful group of people. And, and in full disclosure, I'm on the board there. They have a set of values cards that they have developed over the years. I think some people naturally can say like, hey, hey, what are your core values? And they can, they can spout out five or six things really quickly. These values cards, yeah, motivational values, I think is the name. It's 20, 2164.net is their, uh, is their website. To see the words written down in a small description, sometimes it's just easier to like say, okay, what's your top five? What's your bottom five on those? And I think for some people, that's really helpful to respond to that. And then with vision, vision is kind of like, if you're doing the, if these things are being lived out, what does that look like? And so that is actually, I think, can be a fun exercise of saying, and what I've tried to do in the book and in this worksheet that goes with the book is to say, okay, here's some questions. Here's some big categories. Let's take a, a white sheet of paper, blank sheet of paper, and put some ideas out there of what this looks like and then refine it over time. But I think it's more that people just, we all are busy. We all have competing demands. It's easy to not take the time to put things down on paper to say, like, if I'm for my own self, like, what are my real priorities? What are the things that I most enjoy doing? And am I making sure that, that I have time and space in my life for those things? In my family, like, what does that look like in my marriage? Like, what does it look like? What, is, what does success look like for that? And then saying, okay, what, how do we then take that to the next level? Like, what is the funding requirement to, for that? And what's the time funding requirement for it? I think in many cases, like so much of life is, is you end up a degree off course at the beginning and you play something for 10, 15, 20 years. And suddenly, you know, you end up in a situation with either personally or within your family where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure it just wasn't on the radar 20 years earlier. And the hard is, is like, how do you get some of these things surfaced today? Yeah. And, and so I think there's a lot of hard conversations there that people just frankly don't want to have because you're basically auditing your time and your value system. And it can be really scary to realize that you're putting resources to work on things that don't reflect your values necessarily. But it is a really healthy exercise that everyone should go through. And I'm sure you help facilitate those type of conversations. But once you've kind of identified your, your vision statement and your purpose, how do you actually go about building the wealth strategy itself and executing on that strategy? Yeah, I think, I think about it in a couple of buckets. So one is to take 
you know, once you've kind of got that vision, those, those kind of core identity pieces in place, it's then, to, it's then the next step is saying, okay, how do I begin to translate that into, it's kind of, I mean, it's that old saying, like, what's measured gets managed. So how do I go from a qualitative description in many cases, and then putting a quantitative number of that? And so, you know, a specific number or, or something that looks a little bit more precise and in the book, I think it's in kind of the last chapter, walks through a handful of questions to basically say, okay, you know, in terms of consumption, like let's begin to surface the priority, you know, the, what the actual dollar amount is around that. You know, I think one of the kind of classic questions on giving to future generations is, is like, is the, you know, well, how, how much is too much, right? Like and it's no one wants to hurt future generations by giving them more wealth than they're able to handle but that's unique to every child and it's unique to every family. And I, I just published a piece this morning on, on my blog around this, even this concept of like entitlement, which we all know that that's a negative outcome. Like no one wants to create a situation where they build entitlement in their family. But the challenge is, is like, it's a, it's a very squishy concept. And it, you know, what does it mean to be entitled? Is it, is it, if it's present in any form that's negative, or I actually think that we're probably all a little entitled in certain parts of our lives we have certain expectations around things. So it's this question of like, well, what do you do with that? And how do you, to make, how do you manage that? And so all that to say, like that next step is beginning to take qualitative, translating it into quantitative. And then frankly, that's, if there's then a financial implication from that, an actual like asset implication, that's where you would go to the person, you know, hopefully you, you know, you've got a great wealth manager that you're working with, a great investment advisor, that's going to be able to help translate that into a portfolio goal that can f see those things tracked, can make sure that you're on track from an investment perspective. In the case that it's actually something that's more, you know, something like a time commitment or other priorities, I, I actually think that's where beginning to set to develop some sort of annual planning process as a, as a person or as a family can be really helpful. I worry because, you know, there's a there's an old saying that it says that all of uh, man's problems stem from the fact that he's unable to sit alone in a room and think. Poor paraphrase, but it's this idea that like, yeah, like some of this work can be really can be really tedious to do. And certainly like I'm happy to spend time with I, I do do this work and spend time with clients just where folks say it's it's nice to have an outsider to be along for the journey. I don't think it has to be, you know, this doesn't have to be the equivalent of going to the gym 30 consecutive days. But I think to the extent that, that you can begin to say, okay, on an annual basis or on a quarterly basis, if these are our big priorities, what does that actually look like? What does that mean in terms of where we go on vacation? What extracurricular activities uh, are our kids involved with? You know, it's the same goal setting that hopefully we all do in our businesses year in and year out. It's just beginning to like bring that discipline into to other parts of life. There's some great tools that are out there Chip and Dan Heath's book, Switch, about habit formation is great. There's a book called Tiny Habits that's fantastic that, that kind of can help you kind of hack, quote unquote, hack the way that you uh, behavior change on some of these things. In some ways, it's not necessarily about wholesale behavior change. It's how do you refine the things that are already going on in your life and just make sure that they're more aligned with what's actually most important to you. Yeah, which easier said than done, but <laughs> having that type of rigor and structure is critical in my opinion, in my experience. Now that we've kind of gone through a little bit of that, before we wrap up, I want to touch on something that I just, crazy how the world works. You, in your book, reference this concept of, of relative happiness. And in the New York Times op-ed on Sunday, there was a long article about the Brickman study, which talked about how people who survived accidents 
versus recent lottery winners thereafter, their relative happiness actually hadn't changed that much amongst those two populations. And if anything, the accident survivors actually had elevated happiness factors long after the event occurred, much more so than the lottery winners. So how does that, I I think it's very difficult to be empathetic with a population of these family offices, but in my experience and opinion, this money and this capital has energy and that energy can be positive or it can be negative. What have your experiences been like with that concept of relative happiness when you work with certain families? It's an excellent question. And, and I would say, you know, isn't 2020 is a really interesting example of that. And uh, I was having this conversation on a Zoom call yesterday with someone, which was, you know, if you had told me a year ago that I would have worked from home for basically nine consecutive months, that every day looks pretty similar in terms of the places that I go. If you told me that in December of last year and said, okay, well, score your uh, your level of happiness, contemplating that reality on a one to 10, I think I would have told you I would be on, been on a two or three, right? Like you and I both enjoy meeting people. I typically travel at least once or twice a week, twice a month for work, like the chance to get out and see the world. What's really interesting is, is okay, here we are nine months into this and I'm actually probably as happier or happier. And so I think that's, that's some of the challenge is, is, is exactly that humans can get comfortable with a lot. Maybe that's a good and a bad thing. I think it's, you know, it speaks to the resilience of us as a species. I, I was having a conversation with, with another uh, advisor to, to wealthy families recently, and he said, the challenge with, you know, especially the ultra high net worthy and ultra high net worth and the folks who even, you know, get into the billion plus levels of, of net worth when you, when you start getting into the kind of top 10 basis points or one basis point of net worth is, is that wealth becomes almost like this shadow that you bring with you into every interaction. And every family makes peace with that in different ways. You know, I think you see a lot of families, a lot of individuals who just deny that it's there. And they say, it's very much that I was raised in a certain way. I'm very comfortable in this. And so I'm not going to change my behavior at all based off of of my level of, of net worth. And then you've got other folks that run and they say like, this is fantastic. I'm going to be, this is, and probably this is, you know, the kind of general sentiment that the, the newly rich or the kind of the tackiest of the wealthy is that they're, you know, they, they they're very spl- can be very splashy, which is the, like, we've landed in these circumstances and like, we don't know what to do with it. So we're going to do everything with it. And that's just probably, it's the same. It's actually not wrestling with what it means to be wealthy. It's just defaulting to, you know, one person said, well, I'm not going to do anything. And the other person said, I'm going to do everything. I think the challenge is, is for is how to like thoughtfully integrate wealth into life. And that's where it's, there are no clear answers. There's no way I can sit with a family and say, this is what, uh, this is what you should do. It is contingent on, on the family's background, what their goals are. And every family answers that in different ways. I do think that the challenge is a, how to do it thoughtfully. And then B like how to, how to not do it in a reactive fashion you know, there was also a piece that you saw in the New York Times last week that was talking about inheritors of wealth who are, who are using it to fund either non-capitalist causes or to give it away. And what I think is really interesting is, is that it skews predominantly to young people who are, who are in that and generally of a certain kind of political leaning or, or the like. And while I certainly am highly supportive of things like the giving pledge that Warren Buffett and Bill Gates have been super involved with in encouraging folks to give away over half of their assets over time. 
folks choosing to engage in the giving pledge are doing it in a, a dramatically different way versus this cohort of individuals. And if you think about the work of a 20 something and, and, you know, I'm not you're getting close to 40 here. And so not to sound like I've, I've got it all figured out, but you know, that early emerging adulthood is about figuring out who you are in the world and your place in it. And, and it's easy to define yourself in a negative fashion in the sense that they are reacting to something. So they see injustice as they define it in the world. And then they're saying, well, I don't want to be supportive of that. And so therefore I'm going to do X. That, that's a pretty short term way to define oneself. I think it's actually pretty risky because it's not really anchored in anything. You haven't made a series of positive affirmations. And I think the challenge is, is that we all make stupid decisions when we're young. We all are probably much more black and white on our views of the world when we're young. And that's like the beautiful bliss of naivete. I, I know what I found is the older I get, the more complicated I realize the world is and how little I know of it. And so the question is, is like for those inheritors of wealth, like I would hate for them to be making life-altering decisions when they don't necessarily have all of the information they need to, to make those decisions yet. They, now, they may, you know, as time passes, they may say, like, these are the priorities that are important. But frankly, they may also say the longer, the bigger values priority that they're expressing may, may, may be the same, but the theory of change may be different. And that's where learning to evaluate this kind of concept of theories of change in philanthropy, which is the if I want to see an outcome, what's the actual best way to make sure that it happens? And oh, by the way, like not do harm to the population that I'm trying to help. I think that's something that, you know, you just need some years on you. I know I, I feel that way right now, and I can only imagine when I turn 60, how much more that'll be true. I think with, with wealthy families, it's creating that educational program. It's creating that path so that as young people come into adulthood, the wealth becomes something that becomes a tool as opposed to as opposed to like a like a transplant victim or sorry a transplant patient who like gets a new body part that's grafted in and then their body attacks it and says like we got to get this out like it, and i think you can almost see like an immune like response in some families to say like we don't know what to do with this so we're just going to like bail you know we're going to get rid of it as fast as we can i think lo longer term it's it's a harder path but you can see a lot greater impact whether it's in the family or in society if you're willing to kind of do the hard work to surface those things. So that's the, I think that's the question where some families either get that and are willing to do the work or that other families, it takes time to get them convinced that it's like, Hey, this is actually really important stuff to wrestle with. But sometimes it takes, look, look I think we're all the same that like we have inertia in our lives. Sometimes it takes a hardship, tragedy, pain. Pain can be wonderful in the sense that I think it can help us make the changes that we need in our lives. And some families have to wait for like that external catalyst to do some of that work. Yeah, you, you and I both have experienced the, the truism that it is very rarely the quantitative side that causes a family to, to fail. It's almost always the, the qualitative internal issues that nobody wants to address that cause the ruptures and, and the breakups in these families. Well, we should have started this on the front end, but... Again, I really encourage anyone who's at all interested in this space to check out the book. What is the current day job for you? How do you work with families? What are the services you provide? If somebody listening has a friend or they themselves might be a fit, what is the profile of groups that you work with? 
Yeah, thanks. I appreciate uh, appreciate the question. So, I, you know, it's funny. I, I came into this work because I came out of the investment. You know, I, I was trained as a as a research analyst and portfolio manager. You know, I kind of came out of this work as an investor. Exactly to what you said, though, what I saw was that families have the single greatest advantage in investing because they have this long term time horizon. But if everything blows up before they can realize the time horizon, they may actually end up worse off. So what I, I work with families typically in two ways. The first is, is on this kind of conversation. It's either at an individual level or the family level. It's how do we begin to get alignment on where we want to go? So much more strategic planning in nature. And so that's kind of bucket one. And then bucket two of, of the work is, okay, then how are we going to go about doing that? And especially for families that choose to use a family office as the platform, how does, for most families, that's not how they, they, they did not build their wealth by being an investor in businesses or through the management of assets. And so it's a, it's a new type of business for them to run. And so I work with family offices to think about how do they build world-class organizations that hit those three buckets that we started our conversation with on the planning piece, on the investment piece, and on the family support piece. And that work can be pretty broad. And that, I mean, it can be everything from, let's think about the staffing model, team, what do you pay people? Where do you find the type of people that would, would serve in that role? What policies, you know, how, how, what does the operations of it look like? What systems do you need and processes do you need? And then, you know, what vendors are going to be around you to do that work? There was a study that said, I think the average family office has north of 40 vendor relationships that they manage. It's a lot of people that are involved. So who are the people that the family is going to work with? There's a, candidly, there's a handful in any given space. There's a handful of firms on a national basis that are probably thoughtful in how they serve families. So do you know them? Do you know what market comp rates are for, for engaging them? And so I can work with families, even just on kind of the procurement side of things to say, Hey, we're looking for a partner to help us with X. You know, who do you know, and can you help us find those? So, I'm blessed where I get to work with families where they are. But really, it's designed with this. The heart of the work is, you know, how do we keep families in so that they stay invested together for the long term? And then, what are those pieces around around that that have to be in place? I don't manage assets. I don't want to manage assets. I view if if I've done my work well, I make for really great clients for wealth management firms because they hopefully have a a family that comes to them really aligned about direction, and then they get to do the work of building great portfolios. It's the pre-work that needs to be done before that that relationship happens. Yeah, and I can personally attest the fact that it's very powerful to have somebody who is in that type of role who's not looking to get your AUM, because a lot of people are, and that's important. And again, to reinforce, David probably has one of the most impressive networks for somebody his age within this world knows everybody and makes it his job to know everybody. So I strongly encourage you, if you are in this space, it's worth reaching out to David and understanding exactly what he's doing. And along those lines, how can people best connect with you and then keep up with the services you're doing and, and, and the work that you're doing? Sure. So if uh, if you go to whenanythingispossiblebook.com, that's the uh, the book website, it then it'll point you to uh, to more about the book. It also ties into my kind of corporate website. I write typically at least something once a week on my blog. Eight years ago, I started this kind of quirky newsletter called 15 on Friday, which is just a rundown of 15 interesting things I read that week. It is really wide ranging. It include you know, there may be a couple things related to the financial markets, but it may include some sports content, some surprisingly, the fashion content gets in amazing click-throughs. 
people, especially if it involves with how wives can encourage their husbands to dress better, I can guarantee that will be any any given week the uh, the highest read thing. So that's called 15 on Friday. You can find that on the website as well. But uh, but yeah, if you go to whenanythingispossiblebook.com, that's probably the easiest place to go and, and everything else is laid out there. Yeah, strongly encourage you to sign up for the newsletter. I've been getting it for, gosh, I probably don't want to admit how long I've been getting it for, but a long time. And it's always a real treat when it lands, typically on Fridays, I think. And he always has some really good under-the-radar type articles that that didn't get on, on my desk. And it's really helpful. Good weekend reading as well. So definitely encourage you to sign up for that. And when does the book formally drop? Yeah, so it's uh, January the 12th. So it's the second Tuesday in uh, in January. So it'll be uh, it'll be out on Amazon and it'll be there. So if you if you do go to the website and if you want to stay involved, kind of in, in the loop, there is a quick sign up there. You can get a free chapter of the book. Give me your email address, and then I'll make sure that you get a blast when uh, when it's live and ready to go. Yeah, I, I burned through this probably in two or three days, and really good. I, I've read a lot of these type of things, but this is what one of the best ones for sure. So definitely want to tell people to to wait for that January date to, to go ahead and pre-order it if possible. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. This has been tremendous. I think the advent of the family office over the last 10 years has been disruptive to the financial services industry in a lot of ways, but it's still so young that I think a lot of people that have a multi-generational family office, even they don't truly understand what it means necessarily. And so I think the work you're doing is, is really powerful and important and I appreciate you telling the story on the show. Absolutely, Brian. I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Thanks, David. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.